All right, well, uh, last week I started with a mediocre joke and you responded with much laughter. So I've got another mediocre joke for you. We're talking about humility this morning. We're kind of in a subset of a series on home where we're talking about living in exile and now we're talking about virtues necessary to maintain our identity as the people of God. And I've entitled, this, I've entitled the message this morning, Humble Pie. So that's where we're going. But here's the joke. Tim and Jack were arguing in class when suddenly the teacher comes in and scolds them. Now, boys, I will show each of you humility. The, the both of you must compliment the other in front of the class, said the teacher. Tim goes first by saying, I'm sorry, Jack. I will never be as good at art as you. Jack knows this is pure sarcasm as his art is terrible. So he replies, I'm sorry, Tim. You will always know more things than I do. This catches the teacher's curiosity. So she asks, can you name one of those things to which Jack replies, I will never know what it's like to be so stupid. There you go. That wasn't as funny as last week, but we're talking about humility today, which is tricky to talk about because if you think you're humble, you're probably not. In fact, I mean, only you and Jesus know, but your first reaction to when I say we're going to talk about humility, if you're sitting there thinking, I don't need to hear this message, you're the one who does, actually. That's just how, that's how humility works. And if you're sitting here this morning and your first reaction was, man, I really need to hear this, you are in such a good place. Because that's what humility, I mean, that's just what humility looks like. And so we're going to look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a big book. It's 48 chapters. It doesn't get a lot of attention because it's so big. And Isaiah and Jeremiah often overshadow Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets are easier to get through. And Ezekiel is kind of a crazy book. You'll get a taste of it this morning. Ezekiel was born around the year 623 B.C., and when he was 25 years old, so some of you in here are around that age, 25 years old, a foreign empire comes in and removes Ezekiel from his homeland and exiles him in Babylon. Imagine that. Imagine that right now. You, do, you just get exiled. And you spend the rest of your life in another country, living out your life in exile at the age of 25. His ministry lasted from about the year 593 to 571 B.C. That's about 22 years of prophetic ministry. He was born into a priestly family, and when he turned 30, he would have begun learning from his dad and working in the temple as a priest with his father. But, of course, he was deported at 25. He was exiled, and so at the age of 30, he's in exile, and he gets a call from God to be a prophet to the exiles in Babylon. So we're going to talk a little bit about Ezekiel. Now, I brought a couple books I'm going to talk about, but uh, I listened to something by Daniel Block. Daniel Block has written the premier commentary on Ezekiel. I just want you to know this. This is two volumes. I've read most of this. That's how nerdy I am. Not this week. It was in the past. But this is two volumes on Ezekiel, and this is my Bible. I just want you to... So Daniel Block knows a thing or two about Ezekiel, and he was talking about, why would you read this book? Why would you take the time to read the book of Ezekiel? He says, well, for one, it is sheer entertainment. You read through it, it's sheer entertainment. Ezekiel is called, and his prophetic ministry involves antics and a lot of street theater. And he'll tell these stories that are like cartoons with words. It's just, it's an entertaining book. You never know what you're going to read in the next chapter. 
Of course, there's cultural value. He, he's one of the few prophets, I mean, depending on what you, what you think, but he, he, most prophets do some of their ministry, at least in Israel or Judah. Ezekiel does his whole ministry in Babylon. So there's so much Babylonian culture in the book as you study it. There's historical value because Ezekiel is giving us a window into the life of the people of God in some of their darkest days. I mean, read Lamentations. These are the darkest days of the people. And it has a lot of theological value. It helps us understand what God is up to in his story. It helps us understand why the exile. We start to see some of the idolatry and the injustice that was happening amongst the people. We we see they, they misunderstood, and I think this still happens today. They misunderstood the promises of God. And they, and they didn't understand how God was actually going to fulfill those promises. I think we still do this today. If we're not attentive in our, in our engagement with the community of the people of God or studying the Bible or have a healthy prayer life, it's easy for us to think that God has promised things he's never promised. Or it's easy for us to kind of get distorted and, well, God's got this promise and of course he's going to fulfill it this way when God never said he was going to fulfill it that way. Well, the people got a little too confident and they misunderstood God's promises and it led to exile. They, they claimed the privilege of being God's people, but they forgot that with this privilege comes a mission to be the light of the world. If you've been with us in the series, we've talked about how God wanted to do something in Israel that the world had never seen. But they didn't. They just wanted to be like all the other nations. God's like, I don't want you to be like all the other nations. I want you to be radically different. And because of their d- disobedience and their love of idols, their injustice, they end up in exile. Now, if you get our weekly emails, on Friday I sent out a little note at the front of the email, and I included two clips from the Bible Project. I'm a big fan of the Bible Project. I sent out two, they're seven and a half minute videos on the first and second half of Ezekiel. If you watch those, great. A few people told me they watched them. If you didn't, I recommend it. It'll take you 15 minutes. You're going to be surprised. Ezekiel is just such a fun book. Watch it. Get on the Bible Project and watch those videos. So I'm going to try to give you a a quick overview of Ezekiel just because it doesn't get a lot of attention. And then we're going to get into humility a little bit more directly. But the book begins with this kind of crazy vision of the glory of God. And Ezekiel's in exile away from Jerusalem. And the glory of God, of course, is supposed to be over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel's kind of like, why is God's glory in Babylon? What's going on? And again, he's going to lay out, God, we're going to find out that God is in Babylon because he hasn't abandoned his people. Because even though the people of God have been faithless, God remains faithful. And so he goes into exile with them. And you even see in chapters 10 and 11, which is really important if you try to understand the overarching story, the narrative of salvation history, it's a big deal. When the, when the temple is filled with Solomon's prayer, it's filled with the glory of God and it's tangible so the priest can't even go in. And then in Ezekiel, we see, well, that, that glory, we see it leave the temple. Ezekiel sees it, which is why a few years later when the Babylonians come to Jerusalem and destroy the temple, they can do that because God's glory is no longer there. God has left the temple because of their covenant disobedience, but God has not abandoned his people. He is in exile with them. You read through in chapters 12 through 24, you're going to see a lot of judgment on Israel, kind of explaining why the exile. Chapters 25 to 32, you'll get a lot of judgment on the nations, and then Chapter 33, kind of this announcement that Jerusalem has fallen. 
But then in chapter 34, it turns a corner and you begin to see some of the beautiful ways that Ezekiel, anointed by the Holy Spirit, imagines poetically the restoration of God. It's really powerful. We'll read from chapter 34 in a little bit. Chapter 36, he's going to talk about a new Israel, a transformed people. He's going to kind of lean into some language that Jeremiah used. Jeremiah calls it a new covenant. But when the law of God is written on our heart, when the Spirit of God cleanses us from the inside out, Ezekiel's going to dream of those days. Chapter 36. Chapter 37 is that famous chapter with the valley of dry bones. It's going to remind us of the story of Genesis, God creating humanity, and it's going to generate a hope that God's going to perform a new act of creation, new creation, that God is going to remake humanity. Chapter 38, we're going to get God's hope against evil. It's going to talk about Gog, this Gog that is going to represent all of the violent nations. And Ezekiel is going to pull out his entire poetic tool set to describe how God is determined to finally defeat human evil that has ruined his world. And then chapters 40 to 48, again, a lot of beautiful imagery around this temple imagery. And the point is that God is with his people again. And part of what Ezekiel doesn't want you to miss is that everywhere God is, there's life. He's a picture of the dead sea. Everywhere God is, there's life. There is just life bursting forth. That's what Ezekiel gives us a picture of. So how does this connect to humility? Well, I was thinking about Ezekiel. Actually, as I was thinking, because I was thinking about preaching on humility in this series on exile, and I thought of Ezekiel. So I'm going to read a little bit to you, and here's here's my thing. You tell me if you could do what Ezekiel does without humility. I'm going to read chapter 4, which is, which is up there in the ranks of best chapters to read when you're in junior high school. You'll see why when we get there. But you tell me if you can do what Ezekiel does without humility, without a lack of, like with a carelessness about yourself, like it's not all about you. So Ezekiel chapter 4, ready? Some of you will remember this. You probably haven't read it since you were 12 years old. And you, son of man, take a brick. He's doing street theater. Take a brick and lay it before you and engrave it on on it a city, even Jerusalem. So he's going to make a model, and this brick is representing the city of Jerusalem. And he's he's acting out, because the people were convinced that God would never destroy it. Nothing could happen to the temple. It's God's temple. Nothing would happen to the city of Jerusalem. It's God's city. It's Zion. And Ezekiel's like, ah, it's going to happen. You guys don't understand. And so he's enacting the siege, put up siege works against it, build a siege against it, cast a mound against it, set camps against it, plant battering rams against it, take an iron griddle, place it as an iron wall between you and the city. And Ezekiel's part of this. It's street theater. It's street acting this stuff out. Let it be a state of siege, excuse me, siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. And then we're going to see even how much more he gets involved and and the extremities to which he's going to go. I mean, imagine in the downtown area of wherever you live, there's just a guy who sets up this model of the city being destroyed and, and then does this. Lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. In other words, Israel, uh, Ezekiel is kind of functioning as a scapegoat. If you've read a Leviticus and know anything about the Day of Atonement, Ezekiel is kind of acting like the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. The punishment of the people is being laid upon him. And you're going to do this. You're going to bear the punishment for 390 days. That's not an exaggeration. 
390 days, he set up this model. Ezekiel's there. He, I don't know that he's there, lying there the whole time, 24 hours, but at the, at the main part of the day, he's out there. He's lying there on one side. And this, he's prophesying the siege. And then verse 6, and when you have completed this, you will lie a second time, but not on your left side, this time your right side. Because the left side was for all of Israel, right? Israel was within sin a little longer. Judah's a little less. But you're lying on your right side for Judah. Set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. Your arm bared. You will prophesy against the city. He says, I'm going to place cords upon you so you can't turn from your right. You're You're going to remain stable for 430 days while you lay there. Street theater. And you know people would walk, what is this guy doing? But here we go. Here we get into the junior high stuff. You're going to make wheat and barley. You're going to make bread during these days that you're lying on your side. And you're going to eat it and you're going to take water and do all this stuff. Verse 12. And you, you tell me if it doesn't take humility to do this. You shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on, or you could imagine, over human dung. Does it take humility to do that? Bake bread over human dung? God says, thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread. It's unclean among the nations where I will drive them. I imagine Ezekiel saying, that's disgusting, God. Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From the youth, I have kept kosher. I've been blameless. God's like, well, you're right. All right, how about cow dung? Ezekiel's like, all right, let's do this. I'm telling you, it takes humility. (laughs) That takes humility. That's what Ezekiel does. He doesn't take himself too seriously. He's selfless. In fact, he's not thinking about himself at all. There's no way you are if you're going to do that. Well, we're going to jump forward on into chapter 33. I want to highlight another part of this. Again, we've talked about well, we've talked a lot about the prophets recently and how, how when they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, they, they write poetry. And, and part of what they're trying to do as we've been looking at these prophets is learn from their lives and learn from their poetry how to maintain the, our identity as the people of God in exile. How do we live as Christians in a, in a culture that doesn't want us to be Christians? And this is, again, more of the task that Ezekiel was called to. Ezekiel chapter 33. God says, As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another. I mean, in other words, God's like, the people are talking about you. They see you lying on your side or chopping up your hair with a sword. All these crazy, they they come to watch you and they talk about you all the time. So what's the, fruit of, what's the fruit of Ezekiel's ministry? Okay, come hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And I, I imagine that being a somewhat mocking statement from the people here. They come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they don't do any of it. They don't do any of it. Now why? For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. And their heart is set on their own gain. Again, this is one of the contrasts that I see. How do you maintain 
your Christianity in a culture that doesn't want you to be Christian? How do you maintain your identity as the people of God when you're in exile? Well, if you go the route of pride, of conceit, of what's in it for you, your own gain, you're going to become like modern-day Babylon. You're going to lose your identity as the people of God. But Ezekiel protects his identity because he remains humble. God actually forces him to be humble. All kinds of character-forming tasks that God asks Ezekiel to do. Verse 32, And behold, you're going to be like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. They're going to come and watch because you're entertaining And they're going to hear what you say, but they're not going to do it. And then verse 33, that I also think this is pretty important if we're going to understand life in exile. uh, God says, when this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Now they mock you, but someday you will be vindicated. That's one of the things I've thought about. If you and I are going to maintain our identity as the people of God, as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, people are probably going to talk about us from time to time behind our backs. And part of what the, the story of the Bible is you and I will be vindicated, but it may take days. It may take months. It may even take years sometimes. But you and I will be vindicated. We will be vindicated, and it can come in a variety of ways. It can come from the people that were mocking us, seeing the good news of Jesus and giving their life to Jesus, and then you're vindicated, right? Amen and hallelujah. Or it might come with Jesus coming back. It'd be great if he came whenever, right? Jesus, come, Lord, quickly. There are so many ways that you and I will be vindicated, but it's not going to be immediate very often. We've got, we talked about patience last week. We've got to get past instant gratification. You will be vindicated for your faithfulness but it may be a long time. But that's part of life in exile. And if you take the time to read through Ezekiel, you'll see this. You and I have to be willing to lay down some of our definitions of what success is. If you let modern-day Babylon define for you what success is, you're going to have trouble maintaining your identity as part of the people of God. Again, I think you read through Ezekiel, he's so humble to do these selfless things and to be humiliated, really. And he does not live for success. You read through the book, there is no sign of any convert. There's not a lot of friends mentioned in Ezekiel. I don't, I don't know that he has any friends. He loses his wife. There's no, there's no sign of positive fruit from his ministry. But Ezekiel is just faithful. It's not about success for him. It's about being faithful. He is faithful to God because God is always faithful to him. It's part of what it means to live in modern-day Babylon. So we're going to lean a little bit more into this virtue of humility. I think Ezekiel gives us an example, but I want to keep driving deeper into some practical ways of thinking about it. And we've been talking about virtues and two vices, and when you think about the vices of humility— I think it, it, it catches my attention because the vices are a big deal in the Bible. One vice is, right, the deficiency, the lack of humility, and then one would be the excess. It's too much. So the deficiency, I think we would call shame. And I'll try to distinguish a little bit between humility and shame, but shame, because both kind of involve an I'm not enough. But shame is I'm not enough and I'm not worthy of the love of God. 
And I tell you that the enemy loves to whisper that into your or my ear. You're not enough and you're not worthy. You're not worthy of the love of God. We know that's not true. Jesus gave his life for you and me. And so there's a difference. Humility says, I'm not enough, but to borrow a word from my friend, Jesus has taken care of my not enoughness. <laughs> one of the things I pray, if you ever go through prayer school, one of the things I pray multiple times a day is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a humble prayer. That's a prayer of humility formation. I'm confessing I am not enough, but God loves me, and he's shown me mercy, and he's shown me forgiveness. I'm not enough, but somehow Jesus has made me enough. It's a gift. And that's the other side of things, right? If shame is too little, pride is too much. Another big deal in the Bible. Pride is competing. Pride is maintaining my superiority. Pride is trying to stay ahead. Humility tells us that life is a gift to be lived, not a game to be won. Pride says life's a game. Shame says life's a game and you've lost and you're forever a loser. Pride says life's a game and you better get working because you've got to beat everybody around you. Humility says life's not a game. Life's a gift. We receive it as a gift. It's all grace. We don't earn it. It's gift. Praise Jesus. Let's live this gift. Humility. Following Jesus' counsel will lead you into places of humility. What does Jesus say? If you walk into a room, don't take the seat of most significance. You find the humblest seat and you sit there. Jesus says, take the last place. And if you follow Jesus into this path of humility, you will learn that humble people are not shocked or offended when other people put them in the last place because that's the place Jesus told them to go to anyway. So you live in modern-day Babylon. Some people might put you in the last place. You're not shocked or offended. Well, Jesus told me to sit there. Thank you. In my upside-down kingdom with King Jesus, this is an honor. Thanks for letting me sit here. We do this because we trust that we are loved, accepted, forgiven, and redeemed just as we are. Or to help you think about this a little bit more, let me read this. Just a series of questions. I've actually read this before. Wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition nor, on the other hand, is frightened to death of it? Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that gives them the edge over others? Or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and be tormented by regrets. Wouldn't you like to be free of all of that? Wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver medal at the Olympics and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal winner did? To love it the way you love a sunrise, just to love the fact that it was done, for it not to matter whether it was their success or your success, not to care if they did it or you did it. You are as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourself, because you are just so happy to see it. Now we're getting into humility. Now, of course, for us, if humility is a virtue, we learn the most about it from Jesus. And so I want to get to Jesus. I want to talk about why humility matters. But I want to use Ezekiel to get there because I'm trying to give us a little taste of this book. So if you want to flip to Ezekiel chapter 34, it's one of the great messianic chapters. 
And again, as we talked about, these, these poets dream, and they don't try to explain everything. They use the imagery of poetry. And you might ask them, we looked at Jeremiah, in that day, what day, Jeremiah? I don't know, but in that day, it's coming. Ezekiel's going to dream. He's going to talk about God in ways. We're going to say, how could this be, Ezekiel? He's going to say, I don't know. I'm just writing poetry inspired by the Spirit of God, but I bet God will make it make sense when it's time. Chapter 34 is one of those chapters. He's going to begin by talking about really the vanity, the selfishness of the leaders of Israel. You can read First and Second Kings. You'll see the shepherds of the people of God and how they failed in their selfish, selfishness. But then we're going to get to verse 11, and God says, I'm going to do something about it. And I want to read this. I mean, maybe, maybe the Spirit of God is trying to teach you or walk you down this path of humility, and a lot of what we're talking about today is really important and meaningful. Praise God if that's true. But maybe, maybe you're here this morning, and you're just beat up by life. And maybe, and if that's the case, maybe you can ignore everything else I'm saying, but hear these words. Because these are God's words to the people in exile, and these are God's words to you and me. And I want you to hear these as good news. This is God speaking. Verse 11. Behold, I, notice that I, I myself, I'm not letting anybody else do this. You are so important to me that I am going to do this myself. That's what God says. I will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. If you feel like you're lost in exile, God is coming for you. Your good shepherd is seeking you out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he's among the sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all their places of exile. They've been scattered in the darkness, in the clouds, and I'm going to bring you back. If you're in exile, God is bringing you back. He's bringing you home. He's going to feed you on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. He's going to feed you with good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel. You'll be in grazing land. You're going to lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture you'll feed. That's what God wants to do. God says, I'm not going to let anybody else do this. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down. And I will seek the lost if you're lost, God is seeking you. I will bring back the strayed if you've strayed. If you've strayed, God says it's okay. I'm going to bring you home. I will bind up the injured. Are you injured? Are you, do you, God says, I'll heal you. I'll be your physician. And I will strengthen the weak. Are you feeling weak this morning? God says, I got it. I will give you strength. And then he says, if you've been experiencing injustice, he calls from the, the fat and the strong, I will, I will destroy them. I will protect you. I will bring justice. So God says, I'm going to do it, and only me, and I'm not going to let anybody else do it. And then we jump down to verse 23. <laughs> and I will, set, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Wait a minute, God. You just said you and you alone are going to do it. Ezekiel, how can it be God and his servant David? How does that work? Ezekiel says, I don't know. I'm just imagining in poetry, but I bet it'll make sense someday. Well, we sit on this side of Christmas, and it makes perfect sense, right? Because God in human flesh entered into our world as a descendant of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He is the shepherd, the servant David, who feeds his people, who looks for the lost, who heals and rescues and strengthens. Verse 24, God says, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, my son, Jesus, shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, 
That's spoken. <laughs> it's a cool prophecy. I love it. And it gets us then to Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to look at, we're doing a lot of Bible this morning, but I don't have to apologize that, right? You guys like that. Matthew 11, 20 to 30. We're going to look at two New Testament passages this morning. And, and we've looked at these before. They're the most famous passages on humility. I just can't get around them. They're very meaningful to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30 is some of the most important verses in, in my prayer life. Jesus, the good shepherd, says to you and me, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Don't you just even feel the weight of the world kind of come off your shoulders as you hear Jesus invite you into his rest? And in case you don't, let me, let me just explain. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why would we do that? Because Jesus says, I am gentle and the word is I am humble. I am humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the great invitation of Jesus. You and I know what it's like out there in modern day Babylon. The world is harsh. Jesus says, I am gentle. You and I know that we live in an age that is arrogant. Jesus says, I am humble. You and I know that times are hard. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. And if you come to me, I will give you rest. Anybody feel like coming to Jesus and finding some rest this morning? <laughs> if you do, I've got good news for you. He's just waiting for you. In fact, he's running you down. <laughs> and I want to contrast this Jesus with what we know from modern day Babylon. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. Jesus is not easily exasperated. Jesus is the most understanding person in the world. In fact, the most natural posture for Jesus is not a pointed finger. I can just feel myself tensing up, right? And it's not a wagging finger of shame. Shame on you. No, the most natural posture of Jesus is come. Come. Come to me. What's the posture of our, of our shepherd? He's gentle and humble. That means he's accessible. There is nobody who's ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. You don't have to jump through any hoops. You just come. He says, I'll give you rest. I'm gentle. I'm humble. As we talked about last week, he doesn't say he'll magically and instantly make everything better. He invites us to come to him and follow him. Learn from him. Learn this new way of living. So when it's too hard, we come to Jesus. When it's too heavy, we trust Jesus. When it's too complicated, we look to Jesus. When we're anxious and afraid, when we're weary and worn down, we fall into the arms of Jesus. When it's all too much to handle, we somehow put on the easy yoke of Jesus and he handles it for us or with us, depending on the circumstances. We come to Jesus because he has good news for us. Now, the early Christians had some challenges with humility because their God expressed his power through this humble posture. And I got two more books I'll recommend this morning. Uh, if you like, this is a bit more thoughtful book, but it's a book called After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters by N.T. Wright. It's a very theological book and thoughtful but he lays out, a, it gives a case for Christian virtue. 
Now, the other book that I want to recommend, is a, it's a little bit easier to access. It's much shorter. It's called Humilitas by John Dixon. It's all on humility. Uh, I love this book, actually, because uh, it's actually not even written for the church. It's written, written for a broader often, audience, and he still uses the word cruciformed. I love that. talks about the humility, the beauty of humility. But both of these authors make a, a strong and compelling case that prior to Jesus, humility was laughed at. It was never considered a virtue. Now, that might surprise us where we live because, because Christianity has still had some impact on the culture that we live in. And so there is a bit more valuing of humility than there was before, because before Jesus, there was no valuing of humility. In fact, Dixon does work tracing it back. It's because of Jesus. And it's because the early Christians had two options. Either Jesus was not as great as they had first thought, and his crucifixion was the number one piece of evidence of his insignificance, or, and of course, this is the route the early Christians went, the notion of greatness itself had to be redefined to fit with the fact of his seemingly humiliating end. In other words, for Christians, the early Christians, the crucifixion was not evidence of Jesus' humiliation, but proof that greatness can express itself in humility. And I, I mean, if you do a little history study, maybe read these books, you will feel the weight of that. I've begun wondering, you know, is, has the church been that kind of powerful change agent? I don't think it happened overnight. But humility went from something that was laughed at to something that the broader world thought, yes, that's actually good for living. And it was all because of a bunch of Christians were trying to follow Jesus, and they dared to believe that what Jesus said about life and humanity was the ultimate truth. And I, I was, what would it look like for us? What if we were countercultural because we were courageous, patient, and humble? Because we were merciful, loving, and forgiving? I think we would stand out in modern-day Babylon. I think there would be times that people would laugh at us behind closed doors. But I know we'd be vindicated. Because Jesus is Lord. Really quick here. Well, not really quick. We've got a couple more minutes. But last passage, Philippians 2. So this is the other famous passage on humility. And I thought it'd be interesting to look at as we try to get maybe even a little bit more specific on application. But Paul's writing, I did a series on Philippians a few years ago, if you were here. Uh, he loves the church of Philippi. It's, I mean, they are friends. They are encouragement. It's a healthy church, but they do have a squabble. They have a fight in the midst of their people. That's the thing that's probably true about Crossview. I think we're a healthy church, but from time to time, we can have fights amongst ourselves, little pockets. It's okay, that happens. We aren't the first church where that happened. Happened in Paul's day. And so Paul writes, and he tries to help the people, uh, tries to shepherd them. And this is what he says. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the, of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord and of one of mine. One. And in other words, there is, as the church, there is, and we've been trying to do this for two years, in the midst of a modern day Babylon that has tried to splinter us again and again, we have said as a church, we're going to choose unity. And we are going to choose to try to love each other as Jesus loves us and as Jesus brings us together. That's what Paul says, all we're supposed to do. But humility is the crux for this, at least in this passage for Paul. Verse 3, 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. We'll talk about that a little bit, but some translations say vain conceit or empty conceit. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in in humility. Humility is Paul's answer. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's not saying, well, play this shameful route where I'm just scum and everyone's better than me. No, no, we're all equally loved by Jesus and we're valued by Jesus. But when you, when you think about your relationship with other people, it's humble to consider their interests above your own. It's humble to put others before yourself. You'll be doing well. It'll be healthy for the church if you do that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, I like to say it this way, consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage or something to be grasped. Jesus did not consider his place as something to just be grasped. He wanted to give his life away. That's what he does. And so what does he do? He made himself nothing, taking the form of a certain servant. This is why I call this the earliest written down Christmas carol. Being born in the likeness of men, it's Christmas, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Jesus was humble, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you know the story. This is like a song, and this is where it breaks. This is where we'd have a little musical interlude, and then the music would, would build, and Ben would be up here on the drums going crazy. And we'd get all excited because, because Jesus humbled himself, but will he be vindicated? And three days in the grave, but then he's vindicated, right? God highly exalted him and bestowed him on, that, on, on the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. And at the name of, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we sing it, we shout it, we get excited. But it begins with humility. It, it ends with exaltation and vindication. So uh, Paul's giving us some direction, and I kind of want to, I want to end this way to kind of tie up. We've had these three weeks on virtue. They aren't the only three virtues. They're just three virtues that I think are helpful for life in modern day Babylon. But trying to help you see why this matters. There's an old saying, give someone a fish and you feed them for a day. Teach someone to fish and you feed them for life. Paul's version would seem to be, Give people a command for a particular situation and you help them to live appropriately for one day. But if you can teach them to think Christianly about behavior, if you can teach them to pursue the Christian virtues, they will be able to navigate by themselves into areas where you hadn't given any specific instructions. Paul doesn't get into all the details of whatever the fighting is in Philippi, But he says, look, if you choose humility, you'll be okay. I don't need to tell you how to sort this out. But if you choose humility, you'll figure it out. You'll work it out. Be humble. Why? Because Jesus is humble. And he modeled humility. So be humble. You're his people. (laughs) So a few specific thoughts and then we'll be done. First, you know, he talks about humility as opposed to rivalry and conceit. How does humility do away with rivalry? Just a few thoughts. Humility enables me to sit next to you rather than across from you. In other words, it's not all about me and what I want. We're not competing. I'm not trying to best you because I'm for you, because we're of the same family. So I sit next to you rather than across from you. Humility enables me to put the problem in front of us rather than between us, or as we all naturally do, 
I slide the problem a little bit more towards you than me, right? <laughs> no, it's between us, and we're figuring it out together. Humility enables us to have that posture. Humility enables me to genuinely thank someone for their efforts rather than just criticizing them for their failings. Because it's not about rivalry. We're not competing. I don't have to try to push you down to build myself up. No, no, no. I can actually celebrate the good you've done. Humility enables me to acknowledge what you do well instead of just picking apart your mistakes. Humility destroys rivalry. Honestly, I know we still live in a somewhat contentious time. I don't know that that's all going to go away. But if you and I pursue the path of humility, we're going to be fine. Cross, you'll be fine. We'll have, we'll have hard times. We'll have hard conversations. We'll be fine because we'll be humble. And we'll find our way through it. And humility does away with vain or empty conceits. Humility finds others interesting and valuable. It sees goodness in others as given by God and worth appreciating. One of you said this to me not that long ago, but humility says you walk into the room and you immediately know, you think of yourself as the least, least important and least interesting person in the room. Oh my goodness, there's so, many, there's so many people who are so much more interesting than I am. I just can't wait to go talk and learn about other people. This isn't about me. That's what humility does. It gets rid of vain conceit. Humility enables me to listen to you, to ask you questions, and to accept that I may not fully understand the issue. That's really important in the days that we live in, is it not? Humility says, I'm not going to live with empty, vain conceit. I may not understand the whole story, and I will listen. Humility enables me to be open to owning my own part in this. And because love is a calibration of grace and truth, humility enables me to hold you accountable without shaming or blaming you. In other words, humility keeps me open for conversation without blaming you or shaming you, right? There's still accountability, but it's different if we're humble. Vain conceit exists because pride and shame need self-protection, but humility does not need protecting. Humble people have nothing to hide and nothing to protect. Humility is the condition where the mere fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise or offend me. It has no control over me. Apprentices of Jesus will be deeply disturbed about many things and will passionately desire many things, but they will be largely indifferent to the fulfillment of their own desires. Merely getting their way has no significance for them. It doesn't disturb them. Humility has has healed them from vain conceit. They do not have to look out for themselves because God and not them is in charge of their life. So what we can say is that humble people are not controlled in thought, feeling, or action by self-exaltation or by the will to have their own way. But they are easily controlled by the love of God and love of neighbor. And that's really, I love to talk about the resources of the kingdom of God that enable us to live healthy lives in ways that aren't there if you're not a Jesus follower. Because if you're going to be selfless, you've got to have someone or something to focus your attention on. Let Jesus be that. Pour all of your attention on the person of Jesus Christ because he's the most fascinating person you will ever meet. And he's infinite. You can learn from Jesus forever. He's humble. He's gentle. He's powerful. He's love. He's mercy. He's wisdom. 
focus your attention on Jesus and you'll, and you'll have less attention on yourself. And you'll find yourself focused on loving God and loving neighbor. That's, that's, how, that's how we live this life. So I have a piece of homework for you. You don't have to do it. I won't check next week. But I got this idea on Friday. I think it was kind of a Holy Spirit push for me. I was having lunch with somebody. And we were having a great conversation. And this person, I'd been thinking about humility all week because of the sermon. And this person, um, they, they, the way they were talking to me, the story they were, they were telling me, was just, it was just filled with humility. And I got so excited. And I was just like, you are so humble. And I could see it in their eyes. They're kind of like embarrassed, like, ah. But I was like, how are you so humble? Which, again, is the, uh, the only way you should ever ask the question. You should never say, how am I so humble? Because, again, you're not humble. Then. How are you so humble? And it's kind of fun to listen to the person share, well, I don't know. And that's, again, that's the perfect, if you actually have a humble person, that's the only answer. I don't know. I mean, that's just, we, we keep our eyes on Jesus, and somehow the Spirit of God works this out in us, and we can't work it out in ourselves. But that's your homework this week. Have your eyes open. The Spirit of God, I, I guarantee you, sometime this week, somebody will embody humility. A family member, a coworker, somebody will embody humility. And all I want you to do is call it out. I want us to be a church that celebrates the virtues. Wow, that was humble. Again, you can't call it out for yourself. And if you're doing it to get someone else to say you've missed it, right? That was so humble. I want us to be a church that says, you are so courageous. Oh my goodness, in this instant gratification, modern day Babylon, that is the most patient story I've heard. Praise God that he's working patience in you. Let's be that kind of church. We need that for each other. We won't do it alone. Let's be a church that calls out the virtues, the characters of God. That was gentle. I mean, I was kind of scared to talk to you, but your approach was so gentle. Thank you. Jesus is gentle. I want to call that out. That's humble. You're so humble. Jesus is humble. I want to be humble. Let's be that kind of church. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, again, humility is it's just one of those things, when you really get into this, it's fascinating. It is so freeing. And I do want us to be compelled by the beauty of humility. I want us to be compelled. I want us to be... I want us to see the ripples effects of life that come with being humble people. So would we be motivated because we know a flourishing life involves humility? But would we also be wise enough and honest enough to know that we can't make ourselves more humble? If we try to be humble, it's just not going to work. And so the best thing we can do is aim at you. Maybe we can think about it, pray about it. When you give us an opportunity to practice humility, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict us, that you would not, not let us wallow in shame or fight in pride, but that we would, Holy Spirit, follow you and allow you to make us like Jesus, to make us humble people, that we would stick out as odd in modern-day Babylon because of the kind of people you're calling us to be. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.